Hello and welcome to Give Yourself Some Leeway with me, your host, Eugene Lee. So many times when I'm talking to people about their experience with burnout or why they feel they need to leave their jobs, it's because they feel that there's a disconnect with their leadership. Whether they've had a bad boss, whether they feel that they're not recognized for their efforts, that they're underappreciated in their role, that they're taking on too many duties and made feel incompetent for not being able to do everything all at once. Being rewarded for their work with extra work. And people wondering why this is having such a major impact on their lives, their personal lives, not being able to set a work boundary because they feel like they can't have that conversation with their manager. All this comes back to leadership, does it not? Well, today's conversation with David Hatch, David has this massive experience in business management. He's worked in the aerospace industry, and I think that's pretty cool. Coming from a microbiologist, aerospace sounds pretty cool. Microbiology is cool. Changed my mind. But David has now gone into the leadership space because he too has experienced bad leadership and wanted to get to the root cause of what makes a leader. So whether you're a new leader or a new manager, there's a difference. And you want to make sure that you don't become that bad boss. Or maybe you want to step up and become that leader for your team. That you have experienced poor leadership in the past. And you don't want to learn on the job. All this and more in today's conversation with David Hatch. David, welcome to Give Yourself Some Leeway. And thank you for taking the time to join the show. Well, thank you very much for having me, Eugene. Great to be here. Of course, it's great having you on anytime. So when it comes to your background, I mean, you've everything from business management to working with a space business. Uh, this is like pr pr pretty interesting resume that you have right there. So um, what's your story, David? What's your background? And what brings well, you here today? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you think it's interesting. I've obviously done my, my work well on the profile there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think... It's it's best way to describe it is it's a career in aerospace, but always in small businesses and startups. So I'm quite quite used to working in small teams and helping small businesses get their new services off the ground, things like that. Yes, I did spend some time in a in the space sector in the UK as well, which is I hate to say it's not as cool as it sounds, because that's probably horribly unfair. But I think it's like any job, isn't it? If you do it long enough, it becomes routine and less exciting than it might look from outside. That's probably the fairest way of saying it. <laughs> I think one of the things that it reminds me of is um, one of the jokes, especially my, my background has always been microbiology. Mm. And uh, one of the jokes, especially back in university, was what's the difference between uh, an accountant and a microbiologist? An accountant knows that he's boring. <laughs> This is it. Because like I was like, food microbiology. I was like, look at all these bacteria and look at this and look at this. And it's like, okay, no one else is interested. <laughs> the poor accountants, <laughs> that's horribly unfair on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess it really came from I went through most of my childhood wanting to be a pilot. Um, joined the air cadets when I could as well. Um, 
And then that bit want to be a pilot turned into want to be a vice pilot turned into, oh, my eyesight's terrible. That's never going to happen. Um, but I always had that interest in the aviation sector, which leads you into a job in aerospace sooner or later, if you're lucky, which I was. <laughs> um, yeah, and so that career started literally just saw an advert in the newspaper, um, which might tell you roughly how old I am. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, applied for it on a bit of a whim and ended up getting a job in a, in a consulting firm in the aerospace sector. And yeah, did all sorts of weird and wonderful things over the years, um, you know, ranging from literally just buying and selling rivets for aircraft through to big consulting jobs on on expert witness work for legal cases, all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff. And it was very interesting. And what I what I learned really quickly about the small business environment is, and what I still love about it to this day really, is you don't get lost in the machine. You don't become a cog in that giant corporation. And you can see the impact of everything you do on the business as a whole. Um, and yeah, I just caught the bug really. Been stuck with it ever since. <laughs> Awesome. And so that was in the aerospace industry mm -hmm. that you started off. And how did that get you into working with startups? Uh, well, I I participated in a startup. So I was a, a co-founder. It was via a, an introduction from someone we knew in the aerospace company. And, and it over a period of about seven or eight years, it, it turned into a new company. Um, it was all about trying to launch our own satellites. We were in the Earth observation sectors. It's all about satellite imagery, um, kind of like a giant digital camera the size of a bus, but in space. Um, and yeah, some again, some really interesting projects that we got to work on uh, over the years, which I probably can't talk about too much, unfortunately. But <laughs> and let's say you were part of the startup team when it came when it came to that to that. But I suppose and that's again a very very stressful role, especially at such a young age going into a startup. Um it I yeah, I have to be careful because what I don't want to do is be horribly unfair to any of my former colleagues. Um it wasn't stressful to start with, I think is the best way to say it, because it was exciting, it was new, it was a cool industry, you know, space is cool. That's that, that's a cliche for a reason. Um and we were so kind of caught up in what we were doing and there was so much to do that I think the stress of it didn't really enter into anyone's head. In hindsight, though, it probably was quite stressful. And I think that's the thing about stress, isn't it? It creeps up on you. You don't always notice that it's it's there. It's sort of almost building up in the back of your mind sometimes. And all the time it was in that sort of exciting new phase of the company. It was great and it was exciting and you could kind of ignore the things like that that might or might not have been going on but I think where it kind of got a bit more problematic for us was when things began getting more difficult and less exciting and more mundane and then things started to to add up should we say <laughs> um and yeah I mean towards the end of the my time in that company the last sort of year or two it was it got pretty difficult um trying not to give away any secrets I mean, it was years ago now. I doubt anyone's going to care. But anyway, um, we were starting to struggle with things like raising the investment we needed. We were struggling with things like our strategic goals, the general direction of the business. We were trying to go through a pivot at the same time. And 
re reallocate some of the business and roles were changing and all kinds of things like that and so that brings its own set of problems alongside the team and the culture issues that come up around any change management issue that you're going to have and being part of the, the founding team and part of the management team by that stage as well I think that was the first time I became conscious of the stress of it uh, and once you're conscious of the stress, I, I think anyway, certainly for me, it gets worse really quickly. <laughs> it's all like I think if you don't look at it, it's easy to ignore it. But um, yeah, I don't, don't know if you've had similar experience in that aspect of it. Yeah, again, it's, it's when you're in the thick of it and you're kind of just going through the motions, mm. you think you're okay. You're like, okay, this is stressful, but this is what I do. And you kind of identify with it. But it all snowballs to a point where you finally realize I can't do this anymore. You get so stressed out. You get mm. to a point of you're almost going into complete full-blown burnout. But it's just when you get this moment of awareness, you're like, I can't handle all the stress. And then you double up because you're like, you start doubting yourself because you're so stressed at this point, you start doubting your ability to be able to handle all this stress you don't know how to deal with that stress because it's no longer you feel it's no longer in your control so you it just exponentially grows over time and you're like okay I, you get overwhelmed with the amount of stress and as well it's just like a fire getting out of control and um again and then that leads to well that that's what led to my burnout in the end anyway i literally just started hyperventilating and i was like well this is my first panic attack and i started panicking because i never had a panic attack before and didn't know how to deal with it yeah, yeah, that's it. It almost becomes self-fulfilling at that point, doesn't it? Yeah, it's um, it is difficult, and I think particularly in a small business environment, I think there's this sort of thing, isn't there, around the assumption that it's not really burnout; it's just we're working really hard and everyone's going through the same thing. So there's nothing special about you. Just carry on, get on with the job. Stop, stop worrying about all this nonsense. Um, a lot of the time that's that's implied I would say nobody explicitly stated that to me and told me to stop whining or anything like that but um, had I mentioned it maybe they would have I don't know maybe that's unfair um, and that's the thing as well it was never no one ever talks about it it's always mm. implied at, at most at the strongest no one wants to have that conversation no one wants to bring it up because they feel that's a weakness you can't talk about burn you can't talk about your mental health you can't say you're stressed or overwhelmed mm. at work because it's seen as making you look weak as a leader, as a manager. And it's about taking a step back and being like, okay, if, if I'm feeling this way, more maybe my, my team feels this way and it's clouding our judgment. And no one wants to have that conversation because they feel people are going to be on the defensive. And it's, uh, it's costing everyone on a much bigger level by mm. trying to cover it up and trying to overcompensate to try and cover for all that stress and overwhelm and that workload that they can't deal with. That's no longer within their control. And I think that's where everything starts to spiral out of control. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's one of the many reasons why I'm so passionate about leadership today. And it's why I do a lot of, of the work that I do. Um, and I think, you know, going through that experience at the time and, and you know, I definitely did hit burnout and I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute if if you like. Um, but I think there were some key leadership behaviours from our managers, our directors. Um, and, I, you know, I've been through it a couple of times actually in different companies. It wasn't just this one because I don't want to throw all the blame on their shoulders, as it were. Um, 
but it's 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 not just about what leaders do or don't do it's it's about the way they do it the way they talk in front of people the way they're considering whether stress is even going to be an issue and what they're offering to help people manage it if it is and it's just simple like daily behaviors so there's one thing you know nobody ever explicitly said to me about you know you're expected to work certain long hours that maybe are beyond your contract but what I did hear quite a lot was they'd be talking about other people negatively when they weren't in the room because they'd left at five the day before and it just becomes quite pervasive and it builds on this whole stress culture and it's I don't know I don't like it obviously because I went through it and it was bad for me but (laughs) it, it feels as well that it's it's the wrong way to lead and manage particularly in the modern age that we're in now in the post covid and with these things like quiet quitting and the great resignation all this kind of stuff and the way the workplace is changing it's just it doesn't work it's bad stop it <laughs> yeah what you cover there is a lot of the tension and the rift that's caused within the team talking behind mm-hmm. people's backs and that kind of even the things that aren't even said it's just the the look it could be it could be like their tension that could be cut with a knife between co-workers between colleagues between managers and their and their and their team and that can make its way into the the it, it can hurt the morale of, of of the team it can hurt the motivation the drive behind every effort the team makes as well Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, as far as my own experiences with, with burnout, I guess I'm, I'll try and keep it as vague as I can. Um, but I think for me, it, it kind of manifested in a couple of ways, really. Um, firstly, it, it gradually got worse over a longer period of time. So after a few months of it, I mean, you, you, you know better than I do, I'm sure, what the textbook definitions and things are. But I, I certainly went through things like that constant feeling of being tired um i think for me it was more mental than physical but it was a bit of both um i often had that feeling of helplessness you know that nothing you did would make any difference to the outcome so why bother and actually on that one in particular like even today i'm not really sure how much of that was because of the burnout and the stress and how much of it was down to the context that i was working within and the leadership that we were experiencing at the time and maybe that's all part of the same problem I, i don't know but it, it was certainly something I experienced. Yeah, it's definitely a combination. And and I feel that you can justify it. You you might be feeling it yourself. It might just be a mental thing. It might be all being in your head. But mm. if you can feel it from your manager, from your leadership, that or that or from your team, that everyone else is a bit cynical about the work they do or they're not taking it as seriously as they should, then you feel, well, why should I bother? If they're not bothering, why should I bother? And the, And again, if the drive isn't there, if the vision isn't there coming from the leadership, it's hard to drive the team to follow the same goal or vision if the leader isn't showing them the way. So again, the whole team could be burning out. It, it Burnout usually starts, there's probably a burnout culture somewhere and, and that's usually driven by the leadership. If the, if the drive isn't there, if the vision isn't there, if the empowerment isn't there, if the leader isn't empowering their team, then of course everyone was probably everyone on the team was probably burnt out at that same time and no one was talking about it. And I feel that's a massive issue across many a workplace. I thought it was only a very localized thing. And as I started to talk about it, 
and started creating discussion groups around it, I found that it was not even, let's say, nationwide. It be, it was It's a globalized issue. And it's like, okay, who do we need to have this conversation with to start addressing this issue? Because it's on a much larger scale than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 funny the parallels actually with leadership itself. Um, and you know that a lot of people, including me, talk about the power of leading by example and kind of practicing what you preach. You know, walking your own values, walking the talk, all that kind of stuff. But I think what people sometimes forget in this context is that applies to things like mental health and stress and burnout as well. Because if you are the manager, whether you realize it or not, people will be looking to you for the behavior that they're expected to display themselves. So if you're the one who's always at his his or her desk for 12 hours a day and you're always stressed about something and you're always suffering and you're maybe not being as productive as you could be even, that creates the culture, doesn't it? Because people will emulate that sometimes even subconsciously. So it's something you need to think about, I think. And it, it is part of the responsibility of leading because it is a responsibility, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And So when it comes to that, again, as you said, that crossover between leadership and that burnout culture, how do you mm. feel does leadership needs to step up to overcome this burnout issue? Yeah, it's, it's a challenging one, isn't it? I think the first one is, as I was just saying, really, it's about leading by example. So make it okay to go home at 5.30 on the dot or, or whatever, or to work flexibly or to not put in endless hours more than you need to all the time. I mean, sure, every now and then there's going to be a deadline to meet or something, and that's different. I think the second thing is communicate about it openly. So part of this whole thing just with mental health generally in the workplace is the stigma about talking about it. So if you are the manager, if you're in that leadership position, you have that responsibility, then be open about your own experiences with it and encourage others to do the same. Again, not everyone will want to, and that's fine too, but give them, I guess, the the forum to do it, make it clear they can do it in private as well if they prefer, all these kind of things around more inclusive behaviors around the things that everyone struggles with it's not it's not a kind of a unique or niche thing is it every human will have some element of mental health challenge in their life it's it's just part and parcel of the modern age i think yeah definitely i can agree with you there because when i was asked before what were the traits that i'd look for in a leader uh the top three that i came up with up with were commun- communication good a, a leader needs to be a good communicator they need to show empathy and they need to show adaptability with their team mm-hmm. they can't treat every they have to acknowledge everyone's strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and play them to their strengths and help them to develop their weaknesses have to show empathy you have to ha- have an understanding build that relationship build that trust with your team build that respect and only then can you really communicate with them can you get them to see the same vision as you Mm-hmm. And understand, yes, you might as a leader want to work 24 hours a day, but you can't push your team to work 24 hours a day. You can't expect them to have the same passion and drive. You have to understand where their limits are and respect their limits and know that and appreciate them for the work that they do put in. Yes, you can help them. You can you can push them to achieve their full potential. 
and acknowledge that, respect that, and help them to develop the skills that they need to do so, but not push them to burn out, not have them firing all cylinders 24 hours a day and still expecting more because we all know where that goes. Yeah, that's it. And I think it's it's all really starts with that communication piece, doesn't it? Because it, to in order to know and understand all of those things about each of the individuals you're leading, you've got to open the conversation with them. You've got to ask them the questions, right? You need to m- make that first step, if you like, towards towards understanding, ultimately. Yeah, I think it always comes down to three things. I think three is the magic number. I think that everything, when when it comes to the foundation of anything, it's always a tripod. Because if you take away one pillar, if you take away one leg from a tripod, it's going to collapse. Mm-hmm. If you have if you have four or five, it can still stand. If you if you take away one, but if there's only three and they're all leaning against each other, they are, they all support each other in the tripod. So if you take away one, it's going to collapse. They all depend on each other. Mm. yeah mm. interesting you're, you're testing my geometry there um <laughs> <laughs> we're not digging them into the sand or anything yeah yeah, di- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you know a couple of other things that i experienced via burnout i suppose i think one of them you know i've heard about quite a lot is this you you, you get to feel a lot more negative about everything uh and i I definitely had that, you know, I, I was nicknamed Eeyore at one point, um, just because every time a new idea or whatever came up in a meeting, I was the one who, who was the naysayer. Um, at the time, I didn't think that's what I was doing, though. I thought I was just trying to be open and honest and, you know, truth to power, all those lovely things. But yeah, <laughs> others saw it differently and were quite happy to tell me about it. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, they were right. You know, I was, I was in the, a bad mindset and... I think it it is difficult though because when you do hit that wall, you know whatever your good intentions might have been originally that was that was there to to be truthful, to be honest, to be pragmatic, all of those other kind of nice words. You know those good intentions they turn into something less positive quite easily and and without you noticing even. And so when you are in that management or director or leader kind of role, and you're burnt out and you you feel things in your organisation maybe aren't going the way they should what I found happening was it just made me more critical of everything, you know, whether it was a new strategy or proposed change or creating a new role, even to ease the burden on everyone or, or just an idea somebody had in a, in a meeting. And it's, it, it becomes quite toxic actually, if, if everyone in the room is going through that same thing. Yeah. It, it's just uh, the perfect storm. Yeah, I, I I think it's the the best way of putting it. I was trying to think of like what's what's the best way of putting this together. It's like it's just this cocktail of emotion or lack of. Mm. Uh, but mm. yeah, it's just like the perfect storm in a teacup. Um, that you just have a lot of people probably experiencing the same emotion or probably feeling the same fatigue and not talking about it, and That's but and at the same time trying to overcome the. Or trying to overcome a big issue without addressing the the elephant in the room. Yeah, and and that's the thing, isn't it? That makes it all seem slightly silly and absurd when you look back on it. Is if any one of us had just said, "Look, everyone, I'm having a bit of a bit of a tough time with this. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling great about it. I'm going through this or that." And 
that might have inspired others to say the same and then suddenly we all realize we're all on the same page we're all going through the same thing and maybe we should all be helping each other out of it or leaning on each other or offering support but nobody did and again it's because of that stigma that we talked about earlier and it's that's the real shame of it i think and there's two ways that conversation can go you can speak up about it and be like look this is what i'm going through and someone else is like yeah you know what I'm experiencing this too. Um, you know what? Maybe we should just have an open, honest conversation and talk this out. Whereas there's always going to be one person in the group when you say, look, I'm having a hard, really hard time at the moment. And they'll be like, damn right, you're having a hard time. I've been having a hard time for the past 40 years. Now put your head down and get this done. Now, how do we have a conversation with someone like that when they have that leadership style? Air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's quite a difficult one, that, isn't it? And it's, it's funny, actually, because the next thing I was going to say was, and I already mentioned it earlier, but I do still, even today, have this difficulty splitting it out as to how much of it was the result of burnout and how much was just kind of the, the not-so-good management activities that may or may not have been going on at the same time. Um, and when you think about things that we associate with the the more traditional leadership approaches, the autocratic, the the micromanaging, dare I say, gaslighting, um, those kind of behaviours. And it it does it does make it really difficult to pull yourself out of that, to pull others out of it, if the message you're getting from leadership is basically wind your neck in and do as you're told. Um, now, that's probably being horribly unfair to a former boss or two, but, you know. <laughs> and when you get into that thing, so I mentioned getting nicknamed Eeyore quite a lot, and... To start with, that was a joke because somebody said something in a meeting and it was lighthearted. But it didn't take very long for it just to be actually something I was quite self-conscious about. And so I ended up trying to overcompensate and became very inauthentic in the process. And nobody believed me when I said something positive. <laughs> um, and it it is difficult, though, because there's that generational shift, I think, in leadership, particularly that's happened in the last sort of however long since millennials have been around, which I should know because I think technically I am one. Um, but anyway. Um, if I'm one, you're one. <laughs> well, there we go. Okay. Um, yeah, and it's it's the way people view leadership in the workplace that's different, I think. And the technological change that's happened over that period as well. And COVID has accelerated it, of course, because of remote working. But we're not in a position, we're not in a world now where you can lead simply because you know more about everything in the company than the people you're leading. Because I don't think that's the case anymore for the majority of companies. You, you end up having to employ specialists who will, by definition, know more about something than you do, especially in the tech industries and places like the companies where I've worked. And so what that changes, I think, is you have to change your style. You cannot just be what I say goes because you may not automatically know better. So it doesn't work. And then alongside that, you obviously got this generational COVID slash kind of change that we've seen with great resignation and stuff like that, where priorities have shifted among the workforce. So it's no longer just about the paycheck. I think it still is about the paycheck because that's a necessity of living, isn't it? But much more priority now is placed upon purpose upon the values of the company about the way it does business you know there's studies and statistics out there that show how subsequent generations now are more much more interested in a company that behaves ethically 
or is seen to be behaving ethically if you're going to be cynical about it whereas in the past it was just a job it didn't really matter it's just a paycheck i need to keep the roof over my head and that's it i don't care about anything else and i think certain categories of manager and the people who are taking these i call them old school or traditional approaches to leadership i don't think they've quite made that realization yet and i think it's going to be interesting over the next five to ten years to see how that shift changes and which companies survive and which ones don't it is interesting because I'm doing a lot of conversations around leadership at the moment because that's where I'm drawn to, that where I see leadership style needs to change. Mm-hmm. And a lot of conversations are about, yes, we need to change the leadership style where first the leader needs to get to know themselves before they can get to know the, their team. Because a lot of the time a leader is operating from a place where they want to command authority and control because they feel that they don't deserve it because they're coming from a place of lack of experience or lack of authority that they can't Mm. find it within themselves. And another place where another, another thing that keeps coming up and um, it's from the place of understanding only ever understanding this traditional style of leadership where it was, I'm paying you to do a job, so you better do the job or I'm not going to pay you. And people aren't tied to their paycheck as much as they used to be. Again, it all, it all comes down to purpose. One of the main reasons why people burn out is because they feel a lack of purpose in their jobs. And then that leads to, again, this, this is probably going off on a rant. I'm going to have to reel myself in. But it leads people to chase after their entrepreneurial dream or passions i mean like i'm going to quit my job and become a freelance writer dog sitter um e-commerce drop shipper shopify and they go off and pursue that goal next thing realize that okay i i have no capital i have no paycheck coming in and they're working 100 hours a week when they used to be working 45 or 50 and they quickly see themselves burning out even faster and being like, I thought I burnt out because I had no passion or purpose in that job. And now I'm burning out into what was my true passion, what the hell is happening? And then they feel even more lost because they never dealt with the real issue at hand. Mm-hmm. So again, coming back to leadership style, it's where people feel that they have, they're not tied to their ta- paycheck anymore. They're, they're looking for purpose. They're looking for skills and development in their role and progression in, in some state. And, and sometimes their role may not have progression and they just have to accept that maybe it's just time for them to move on. And some leaders can't handle that because that's not the way that they have been taught or maybe the way they have been influenced in the past or how they have seen leadership in the past. And they're trying to, again, as you said, develop this traditional leadership style, learn on the job. This is the only leadership I've ever experienced, so this is what I'm going to do. So it's about, I think, one thing that's majorly lacking in companies is training people in leadership, having leadership workshops. A lot of people are expected to learn on the job. Hey, you've been working here for the past five or 10 years. You're the new supervisor you're the new manager you take care of this team you know how how stuff works around here you put them in their place 
Oh, you, you'll figure it out. And there they are supervising or managing employees who could have been there longer than them, who pe- people who turned down that leadership position because they didn't like their old manager. They were like, oh, I didn't like how he was doing things. People didn't like him and that's why he left. I don't want to be him. And that's how they see view leadership rather than empowering people and saying, look, you have authority on how you want your team to grow. You can help them, give them a vision, help them see the company's vision, help empower them, upskill them so that they can work better together and enroll them in a leadership course so that they don't get into that place where they feel incompetent and feel that they have to overcompensate and command authority. Uh, Again, this is just me. This is what what I've learned from my experience, (laughs) things that I have lacked and things that I have looked for in in, in a leader. And when I go out looking for a leader or manager or in any area of my life, doesn't have to be professionally. It could be a sports coach. It Mm. could be even in the people I like to hang out with at the weekend. I, I want to see someone who's commanding authority with respect, whether whether that be for a sport, whether that be in music, whether that be even gaming. If pe- people playing people playing Call of Duty, it's like, okay, if you're working a team of four or five, whatever, that you don't start shouting at people or, or, or raging mm-hmm. on, on the headset. You're like, okay, let's work as a team. You, you, you. Praise people. It's in all areas of her life. It doesn't have to be professionally. No, no. It's um, yeah. I mean, you, you're going to get me on a rant now as well. I'm afraid. Um, so there's this established issue, isn't there? And what I find quite quite interesting. So if I ask a room of a dozen people, and I've done this a couple of times, you know, hands up who's had an experience with a bad manager or a terrible leader or a horrible boss. Nine times out of ten, everyone in the room will put their hand up. But if you ask the opposite question, how many people have had an experience with a great manager, a really good leader, someone who's made a difference for the positive in their life, it's normally about half if you're lucky. And I think I think a lot about why there, there is that difference. And I think it, it comes down to what you were saying there really about learning it on the job. What learning it on the job means in reality for things like leadership is you emulate the last manager you had. And so if that was a bad manager, you're going to end up emulating them because you've got no other frame of reference. You just think that's the way it's done, especially if it was in the same organization as you're now doing the job yourself. And so again, it becomes self-fulfilling. You just, you don't know it any better. I don't think any of this is really malicious. Nobody sets out to be a horrible manager and ruin their employees' lives. It's just, they don't know any better. And I think it is, it is interesting extremely interesting also extremely frustrating <laughs> and there's this phenomenon right called the the accidental manager and that's really what you're talking about it's it's where someone is promoted into that management position because uh, the classic example is because they were the best salesperson, so they made the sales manager without any real awareness or acknowledgement of the fact that those two jobs require extremely different skills um, and so the skills that made that person really great at selling may also make them terrible at managing and leading people. And so if you don't train them for that new job, if you don't teach them what's different, what's changed, what new skills they have to pick up and then how to do that, 
then they're going to wildly underperform and it's going to be to the detriment of them, the people you've put them in responsibility for, and ultimately your organisation because everyone in it is going to be unhappy. <laughs> and yeah, and that, this is why I get on a rant about it, to be honest. Um, and so that that's we're doing it the wrong way around. And so I, I always talk about it in the context of the way the armed forces do it. And I've spoken to a couple of veterans and they've talked me through how it works, both both in the UK and in the States and even in Australia as well. And the way it works there is either because of your career path before you're even let loose on soldiers or whatever, you're taught how to lead. Or before you are given a promotion, you're trained how to do that next job and how to apply good leadership skills. And that makes so much more sense to me. And it always has. And if you look at any other of the kind of the big professions, I mean, you wouldn't send an engineer out without teaching them how to put things together or repair things without killing people. You wouldn't throw a doctor into a room with a patient without teaching them how to treat them. You wouldn't let a lawyer into court and so on. You know, I could put out all these other examples. And why isn't the same true of leadership and management? In some organisations, it is the good ones, definitely, but not for the majority. I think another thing always comes back down to the investment in training. Mm. I, I feel like companies feel that they don't want to invest in their upskilling, their staff, because they're like, oh, if I train them up, they're going to feel they're too good for here. They're overqualified. They're going to move on. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. We've overtrained someone and now they no longer want to work for us. What a waste of our time and money. Rather than seeing it as oh, our, that, oh, we're putting these completely unskilled people who have no idea what they're doing and absolutely winging it on the job, putting the rest of our staff at risk of developing bad habits and malpractice, mm -hmm. but it's okay. They won't leave the company. They'll probably stay forever because they feel that they don't have the skills to move on. Yeah. It's, it's another one of those, um, Again, I can't remember who originally coined it. It's, it's that little cliche story, isn't it, about the, the CEO and the CFO having the conversation and the CEO's like, well, what if I train people up and they're really super capable and then they leave? And the CFO sort of deadpan responds, well, yeah, but what if you don't and they stay? And it is that classic problem. And I think what one approach that I really love towards this is you take a much longer term view. If you give your people that really positive development experience, you pay for the training, you let them learn new skills and all of that. Yes, ultimately, they, they might leave your business. But if you've done that in the right way, they'll remember it. They'll stay loyal. They'll talk about how great their experience in your company was. And one day, a couple of promotions in the future, they might come back. And then your organization is all the stronger for that. And you've just... It, it's like so many things with leadership and entrepreneurialism, really, isn't it? You've got to take that long view. You can't expect quick wins or only only look at what's going to happen next week or next month or next year even. Yeah, I, I, I find that, and I've, I've talked about this before, that companies see the value in their computers and their machines and their equipment more than they do in their people that they'll invest millions in capital in getting the new production mm -hmm. line and getting the new software and getting the licenses and getting the software updates and they will invest millions. But when it comes to let's run a, a leadership workshop 
for all our staff, for all or for all our, our our managers, for all our team leads, and get them all on the same level as to what's expected of them. Get them to see what their responsibilities are as a leader mm. and how they should be treating their team and how to communicate effectively with their team to make sure that they're all on the same page. Mm. And let's put in might might only be about 10 or 20 percent of what they're putting into all their equipment. Yes, you're not, probably not going to see the turnaround or the turnover in the next six to 12 months. You are going to see it in the in the growth of the company it, you might not be able to read it as black and white as a company throwing out pro- or a, a machine throwing out product but you will see it over the long term growth of the company it's like oh there is actually steady growth here there is less turnover we're getting a much higher rate of uh, compliance uh, le- less non-compliant product um, everything is right first time People are actually smiling in when they're having their lunch. They're 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 laughing yeah. and yeah. Uh, and there's less complaints and less less um there's less absenteeism even. And th- these are all the let's say the things that aren't measured as much on, on paper or or there isn't as much record on data, but it's something that is often overlooked. That why 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 a company wouldn't be investing so much money into their company culture. And it's great to put it on paper and put it out in the news and say like, oh, this company has a inclusive diversity and a growth culture and we are all in this together. I literally just high school musical in my head for a second. We're all <laughs> in this together. But that's the that's the vision that the company puts out there, but does nothing about it. It's like, mm. oh, we can talk about it. Yeah, sure, sure. But we're not going to invest anything in it. So it's like, how can we have that conversation with a company to say like, look, you want this culture. You you want this. You, this is your vision. You want everyone working together in harmony. But you don't want to invest money into training those people to work to that level. You just expect them once you pay them their check that they're going to work to that level. It's like, great, we're giving you a, a paycheck. This is your salary. Now you just need to perform. You 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 need to become that leader. Learn it on the job, without creating that culture first. Yeah, it again, it's a source of almost eternal frustration for me because obviously doing what I do, I, I do hit that blocker quite a lot. Um, and I think you know, I've never found the magic, the magic answer that solves that conversation for me. So if, if you ever do, let, let me know. Uh, but I think. If we're going to be like brutally mercenary about it and, and look at it from the point of view of the business owner, the CFO, not to cast dispersions on accountants again, but it's it is it is a cost, not an investment, if you don't do it. Whereas if you do it, if you do put money into the training, it is an investment and you will see a return on it. And you you compare it to say computers, and you're right, then you know, everyone's more than happy to throw cash at that, but Think how quickly those are going obsolete these days. Whereas if you invest in someone's development, their their skill set, their training, and then the mindset, the loyalty, the happiness that you will also be building up in that person, that's going to give you returns for years in the future. Long after whatever you've spent on that computer has been lost and depreciated and wasted, I would say. 
Um, and, and, you know, there's there's studies out there as well into the positive effects of staff happiness on revenue results for businesses. They've, they've tied staff retention to costs and things like that. And, you know, there's that figure, isn't there, out there that's, I think it's 300% cost of the annual salary of every person you have to replace that's what it will cost to do that and people are more likely to leave if they don't feel that you are supporting them and offering them training and progression and all of those things and another element of it is that how much is it going to cost you to let's say to train one leader who will then be a good leader and influence his whole team for the next five years influence that team to be like oh my leader is now leaving the company i want to step up and take his place he was such a great leader i want to carry on carry on and they'll step up and want to take over mm-hmm. not, not not be in a position where like oh i saw how badly this team was being managed for the past five years i don't want that role <laughs> they, they'll step up and be like yes i want to stay in the company for the next five years become that become just like that good manager or that or that team lead and follow in his footsteps rather than not pay someone, have some learn on the job, probably turn the whole team against them, have really shoddy results for the next 10 years and at the same time not leave. So sometimes it's like a matter of, oh, I'm not confident in my ability and yes, I have really poor results and I don't want to go to the next company because I feel I'm going to be like a failure there too. So I might as well just stay here as long as I can. And again, as, as you said, it's it's the people who stay rather than invest in people so Mm. they can perform to their utmost potential. Mm. And when it comes to the point where they want to move on, more than likely they're going to leave someone in their, in their stead, be like someone on their team, be, be like, look, I want to step up. I want to be like that manager. Yeah, I think you're right. There's definitely that inspiration angle to it. Um, not not to go against our, our narrative that we're building here, but I think there's also a case to be made for if you've had a terrible manager and they leave. I mean, certainly I would have been of the thought my thought process of, right, well, I saw how badly they did it. I'm going to do it better. Some people I can only do it better. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but they, some people see that as kind of the challenge, don't they? Of the, I want to fix that problem. Um Maybe not. Maybe I'm just weird. I don't know. But, <laughs> but yeah, there. I suppose there are two. I, I, again, um, very, very different mindsets, and it all depends on the team members. Maybe that person feels like they should have stepped up five years ago, and they're mm-hmm. like, "Oh, I, I missed out on that opportunity to step up as a manager five years ago, and this is what I had to deal with. I want to correct that because that's how much I care about the team." And they might step up to become that leader for their team but at the same time not get that training and find themselves falling into the the footsteps of their past manager because they don't know how to put their best foot forward and they can only go by what they know or or, or sometimes they might even start to uh humanize what that the bad manager and be like oh this this is the stress he was dealing with that's why he treated the team this way that's why yeah. i'm treating the team this way and it's just another downward spiral. I think another thing before, just, just to clarify again, the difference between being a leader and a manager, because these lines are crossed all the time. So how would you differentiate a leader from a manager? So 
it's it's in terms of the skill sets isn't it i think there's there's a lot of sort of the the quite twee the cliche ways of explaining it you know the the whole um what's what's the one i see most probably um managers do things right leaders do the right thing which doesn't really give you an answer does it it's it's, it's a nice sentiment but it doesn't really mean anything i think what i what i think makes more sense is managers are responsible for things for processes for equipment for for teams even they're they're more administrative it's more about that kind of skill set whereas leaders are more about the ethereal things about the strategy the vision the mission the values the inspirational element the persuading people to do things not commanding people to do things and really they're about the people that's what they are there for it's to support to protect to encourage empower all these nice words for those people and to give them the environment where they will succeed uh, one really lovely definition i had i can't remember who it was now i think it was a guest on the podcast a couple of episodes back or mine um was that the leader's role is to make other people look good and I love that because that, that's what it is about, isn't it? It's not about the individual. It's about the team and doing what you can to make their work lives as best as you can. Does that yes. answer your question? Yes, yeah. that definitely answers my question. <laughs> and it just, um, it, it's funny because I had a previous guest, Stephen Morris, and he said something very similar. And he, and he put it very nicely too. And he said that management is about the numbers. And leadership is about the people. Yeah. And it was just very short, concise, and summed it up very well. And yeah. I, I feel a lot of times people mix up between management and leadership. Um, it's especially when I was first asked about what were the traits I was looking for in a leader. And I was like, well, I'd, I'd want someone who's a good communicator, someone who has empathy, and someone who has adaptability when it comes yeah. to the strengths and weaknesses of their team. And they were like, oh, I was, I was actually looking for time management and uh, decision making. I was like, I was like okay, there, there, there are things yeah. I look for in a good manager. Yes. That, if you want someone to manage a team, great. You, mm. you need to all that all those organizational skills to, to manage a team. But in order to lead a team, you need to inspire them, make sure that they're all following, going towards the same goal, that they all have the same motivation mm. or if they don't have the same motivation that they're working towards their strengths trying to develop on their weaknesses or not focus on their weaknesses where they feel completely incompetent in their role, that you can play them to their strengths and team them up, help them collaborate to work on their weaknesses or to all work towards their strengths. If there's no weaknesses in the team, uh, if, if everyone is playing at all their strengths and you have, you're, you're fortunate enough, you're fortunate enough to have that kind of a team that you're like, oh, there's there's no weakness here. Everyone works so great. Teamwork is top notch. It was like great. You're 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 you you have the optimal leadership skills right there. But people always just there there's just this gray area between leadership and management, and they just want the perfect leader manager with all the skills, and they forget what leadership really means and what management yeah. really means. Yeah, I think you're right again. Um, and I'm going to say something slightly controversial and potentially unhelpful now and say that actually the the skills that I look for in a good manager are leadership skills. 
and the skills I would look for in a good leader are management skills because I think you can't do either without doing both if you want to do it well at least in a business setting um might be different if you're I don't know leading a sports team or playing Call of Duty online with your mates you probably don't need management skills for that but um I, I do think they they need to be two sides of the same coin in a modern business though because if you want to be taken seriously as a manager you've got to be able to bring people along with you and lead them on that journey so you've got to be a good leader equally if if you want to be taken seriously as a leader in a business you've got to be at least passable but a lot of those administrative process aspects of management yeah there is a crossover and i feel that i feel that they kind of come hand in hand um some people yes they can have all the management skills but they won't have the confidence to be a leader. And sometimes they land in the position of a manager then, as you say, because they have the skill set. They oh, you have the manager skill set. We want you to manage a team of 20 people and they're not ready for that. And that's yeah. when they become a bad leader yeah. because they rely too much on their management skills. And they're like, oh, because I have this experience in these skill sets, I know how to manage a team or I know how to, how to manage people but you don't know how to lead them to follow the same goal. You don't know how to lead them towards that vision. And sometimes a leader can be like, yes, I know how to motivate a team, but don't ask me to fill out their calendar or give them a, a roster for the week. I've, I've, I've no idea how to, how to schedule that, but I can put them towards uh, one similar goal, one vision. Maybe, maybe they'll delegate someone on the team to do out the roster. And that, that, that can work too. That can work too. Um, but again, I can see where, exactly what you look for. I think when it comes to if you're trying to hire a leader or hire a manager, you're going to look for those skills because they they do come together. Mm-hmm. Um, that that they're kind of both required, and I feel a lot a lot of the time if you if you're looking for a good leader, they're going to have management skills in tow as well. Well. You would hope so, wouldn't you? But I, I found really that's not always. So. <laughs> I found that's not always the case. I find quite a lot of managers, particularly the accidental managers who are who are there because they were good at the last job, they understand the process and the management aspects of it in terms of the job and what it requires. Um, when I say the job, I mean the job of the people they're leading, um, and they've been sort of pushed into that position not because they're interested in leadership, but because it was a pay rise and who's going to say no to a pay rise. And that brings me to another thing with accidental managers, actually, and the way that we do, the way that corporates, that companies offer these progression opportunities. I think there's there's not enough companies out there that are offering alternative routes to progression. I think in the vast majority of cases, if if you want a pay rise, you have to accept responsibility for leading a team or leading people. But not everyone actually wants to do that. Quite a few people out there, to their credit, probably know themselves and know that they'll be bad leaders and don't want to do that. But at the same time, don't feel that they can say no if they're offered a pay rise, even if it comes along with that. So I think there's there's a whole thing there around what businesses can do to still give people that opportunity for progression, to increase their earning potential, but without forcing them into a pigeonhole that they maybe don't fit into or that they don't want to be in. Um, I don't know what the answer is for that, unfortunately, but it's easier in techie kind of engineering businesses because then you can have the specialism route, can't you? And 
you can be like a senior engineer who's senior because of their experience and their qualifications and their knowledge of the product or the process. Um, it's a bit more difficult in the other kind of sectors like retail, for example. I don't know how you would do an alternative route for progression there that doesn't involve taking on people or shops or whatever else. Yeah, so it all comes down to, yeah, exactly. It comes down <laughs> to di the dynamic of the company. And, and, and that's why it's hard to come up with a concrete plan for everyone to follow. We we all mm. come from very, very different backgrounds or very different ways of scales of progression. It completely depends on, on the nature of the business. And as some 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 of them, yes, there's a very steady ladder of progression in, in terms of where you can branch out and put a job here, put a job there. Mm. But Again, as, as retail, retail, retail is one area that I have never had the, the experience of working in where I feel yeah. nearly all of my friends have worked in retail at some point and they've always told me, uh, I hear all about the trauma of working in retail. So um, I do empathize a lot with them. I was like, yes, I've never experienced working in retail. And, it, and there's always some things like... Um, if if you're in a shop and you put change on the counter or they see someone put change on the counter, they get chills and they're like, oh, I hate when people put change on the counter. And they have all these little, little like trauma or, or traumatic experiences that they've had from working in retail. Um, but yeah, again, another rant, yeah. put myself yeah. back in here. <laughs> it's, it's the different um, uh, scales of progression and, and, mm. and what's expected of a manager or what's expected of a senior role. Mm. And um, I, I'm just going to keep on bringing it back to that people expect you to have to earn these skills on the job mm. rather than to train you in, in for that role to be like, yes, I feel that, yes, you've had so many years of experience in this role and I want you to take up a senior position. But in order to do so, it's really up to the employer to say, I want you to step up in this role, but this is the standard that I expect for this role. And because this is the standard that I'm setting, I want you to take part in this, this, and this training. And of course, we're going to train you up in that. We're going to take on that responsibility to make sure that you do follow up in that training. We're, we're going to invest in you so that you can show up at your best for the rest of the team. Yeah. And it's those businesses, it's those employers that are going to set themselves apart from the rest of the companies out there. And people are going to be like, oh, but that's Facebook, that's Google. These are all the big companies. Oh, and it's like, no, no. There are small companies who care about their staff too. And they're setting themselves apart. That's where you get loyalty. That's where you get people who will strive for success and not want to leave the company. Not because they're tied down to a paycheck or golden handcuffs. It's because they care about a business that cares back that recipro reciprocates the value. Absolutely. Yeah, and reciprocate is the right word, isn't it? And when you talk about things like loyalty and trust and respect, and if you want to build the kind of company, the kind of team that inspires those in people, then really what you have to do first is recognize that it is reciprocal. So if you want people to be loyal, demonstrate your loyalty to them by offering them training and progression and avenues to pursue more skills and all these other things that we've been discussing and it's it makes me think back to to my first job as a manager my first promotion up that ladder 
And at the time, you know, it was offered as as a reward for doing a good job. And then that was that. That was it. There was there was no further conversation about how I was going to learn to do this new job, what training was available, all that kind of stuff. And so what that reward in inverted commas meant to me was more stress, more work, and a very slight pay rise. <laughs> and it and it, it kind of sours the experience and you end up having to scrabble around the whole sort of sink or swim kind of problem. And if you do manage to swim, then the company will take credit for promoting what a great manager, didn't we do a good job there? Whereas if you sink, it's your fault, not theirs. And that whole dynamic is what I'm all about trying to change now. So there we go. Um, which is why I try to work exclusively with new managers, the people who are doing it, who are leading for the first time, because I know what that experience is like. I know how unpleasant and how stressful it can be. And I know how it can, at the time at least, make you fear for your entire future career if you get it wrong. And, you know, I'm I'm here to kind of help those new managers get over that problem, become the leaders that I know they can all be. And Daphne, going deeper on that, how do you help them become leaders rather than a boss? Yeah. <laughs> so we need to talk a bit, I think, about the difference between a leader and a boss, don't we, before I can answer that question. Um, and to me, it, it's a little bit of a cliche statement again, because I do love those, as the listeners have probably realised by this point. Um, we were talking earlier about the traditional approaches to leadership, that sort of autocratic management, the the dictator sort of style. Um, that to me is what a boss is. And it's, again, it's the kind of things you've been talking about as well. The here's your paycheck, do as you're told, or, or you won't get paid. That's That's the boss kind of way of thinking. It's the you're here to jump however high I tell you to. That's that's how it works. Whereas a leader, it's more about, for me at least, uh, I have five. I'm going to break your tripod theory, I'm afraid. Um, five Cs, basically, of successful leadership. So it's, it's the five aspects, which from the result of my experience, from my academic research, and from every leader, every manager I've ever spoken to, these are the five things the five core behaviours, if you like, that I think any successful leader needs to display. And again, we've mentioned some of them already by a different name. Um, so the first one is communicator. We've covered that. We know why that's important. Um, and I put, it, I put it first because it's, to me, it's that top level. It's that foundational behaviour, if you like. You've got to open the conversation. You've got to understand your people. And if you don't talk to them, if you don't communicate, that's not going to happen. But also... Part of a leader's role is setting the direction, is setting that vision, the strategy, the, depending on how high up of an organisation you are, depending on which word is most appropriate there. But if you can't communicate that, it doesn't really matter how good it is or how great your vision is. Nobody's going to understand it or nobody's going to listen to it. So you've got to be able to communicate that well and you've got to be able to do it consistently as well, which I think is another aspect that a lot of people sometimes forget. The second C is candid. So this one, I think, is all about this idea of authenticity, honesty, openness, transparency. It's the trust-building kind of behaviours that any leader needs to do because if your people don't trust you, they won't follow you. They don't follow you. What, what are you there for, ultimately, as a leader? Thirdly, and I'm trying not to leave the point, so I'm going to move along a bit quicker, Thirdly, again, we've talked about this a little bit already, but it's, it's credibility. 
So I mentioned earlier, leading by example, this is the core way really of building credibility. It's people seeing you as trustworthy, as credible to lead them, but also to do your job. And if you can't do that, again, they won't follow you. See previous comment. <laughs> Number four is the one that I sometimes get pushed back on, and it can be controversial, and it's caring. In my experience, if you cannot, as a leader, find a way to care about the people you're leading, you will be much, much less successful as a leader. Now, I'm not saying you have to fall in love with them or anything or become best mates, but you have, have to at least care about their welfare and their ability to do their jobs at a human level, not at a bottom line, I need to make my targets level. And that is quite difficult for a lot of people. I think if you're not used to that empathetic kind of approach, it can be quite a difficult skill to, to pick up. But it is really important, especially in the context of the world we're all working within now with you know the, the economic challenges that many businesses are facing the still hangovers of covid and all the outcomes of all of that and then these kind of quiet quitting sort of issues i think a lot of that is because people are disengaging from from the workplace they don't feel that their bosses use the word boss there this time care about them or their lives or their careers and so if you can find a way to demonstrate that, it's really powerful for leadership. And then the last one, hopefully this one's a no-brainer, but it's you've got to be effective at collaborating. I think we're well past the days, and we've already discussed this at great length, so again, I won't labour it too much, but we're long past the days where a leader can just issue the dictates and then sit back in their office and put their feet up and wait for all the results to come back. I think to be truly effective now, you've got to be able to work with people it's not about them working for you anymore. It's about everyone working together. Um, so there we go. That's that's my small little bid, if you like, in a nutshell. <laughs> I think one area there I've, and where I feel that people think they're leading mm. and they feel that, I, I think that they feel that it falls under credibility and collaborating, but they feel that they're collaborating with their teammates or with, with, with their with their team and by helping them get a project to completion when in reality they're not helping them but they're micromanaging them mm. and that's where they cross the line where they feel it's like oh I'm, I'm i'm actually helping them to get to this oh they didn't finish that this evening and they're now probably didn't finish it this evening but they were probably leaving it because they were stressed out they probably had a kid to pick up and they were like look i'll get it done in the morning and they come back and the manager has left their personal touch on their project i was yeah. like oh yeah i'm just finishing it up for you because it looked like you weren't going to get it done on time and it's like well they're not going to put any more effort into it because you've taken the ownership away from them and they feel that like oh no i'm helping them out I'm I'm showing that I can also help them as part of the team, whereas they've just stepped over the line. They've given them the responsibility. Mm -hmm. And next thing, they took that away by feeling like, oh, they weren't good enough to finish it um, in the time that was they expected of them. And rather than communicating it, they decided to take it upon themselves. Well, they've lost trust. Yeah. And um, I feel that's an area that's often uh, it's it's often crossed with uh, with the best intentions, but I feel 
communication again. Like communication is definitely the, the biggest pillar where a lot of people fail. Mm-hmm. And and that comes from managers, leaders, colleagues, personal relationships, even between parents and kids. And communication, I think, is just one of these things that humanity has struggled with for a long, long time. Yes, you're not wrong. <laughs> even when we speak the same language. Well, yeah, maybe we've got the wrong accents. I don't know. Anyway, um, I, I think you, you, you're spot on there again. And I think the interesting word I'd pull out from that is the question of ownership. Um, and you're right, you know, it's it's so easy to do as a manager. I know, I know I've done it in the past, probably probably more times than I realise even. But for me, I think it comes back to that aspect of collaborating effectively is about giving people ownership, empowering them to not just make the decisions about their projects, but giving them that freedom to fail. Because there's a lot more power, I think, in learning a lesson from making a mistake yourself than from someone else telling you it's a mistake before you've made it. And so that is quite a big an important test of a leader actually is allowing that freedom um and i think the other aspect of it is yes you may feel that you're helping by doing something but it's not necessarily about what you feel or what you think it's about the perception of the people you're leading and that perception point is really difficult to address particularly when we talk about it in the context of micromanaging so for me the the starting point again is as you say it's communication but it's it's curious communication is ask questions it's it's less about checking checking up on something and more about checking in with people it's about trying to give you an example so rather than asking is that going to be done on time ask how can i help you with this what support do you need come at it from that angle of trying to help them and asking open-ended questions rather than those sort of pointed borderline aggressive questions that we're all familiar with from managers over the years i'm sure um and it's it, it, a lot of it is a mindset thing isn't it it's about how you force yourself to think about it from their perspective and how it might be perceived which i'm sure to a lot of traditional managers sounds like hell but ultimately it will give you better results and for those traditional managers those bosses that want to become leaders what's the best way for them to get in touch with you david I don't know, it might be too late for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not, not offering any hope for them, okay? Well, no, no, I think... <laughs> for anyone the, who wants to be a leader but is afraid that they're going to become a boss. <laughs> well, that's that's the that's the thing, isn't it? I think it's... If if you're already at that point... I don't know, that's, that's a really interesting way of asking the question, though, because in my brutally honest way of looking at it, if you are that traditional kind of leader who, who's taking that autocratic approach you're probably also not self-aware enough to realise that that's the wrong thing to do. So you're never going to ask me for help anyway, ultimately. And in the unlikely event you did, you're probably not going to listen to what I have to say. So there we go. That's not the kind of manager I want to work with. I'm much more interested in working with that new first-time manager who has maybe encountered one of those bosses in the past and definitely doesn't want to become one in the future. That's the sort of person I'm interested in working with. And if they'd like to get in touch with me, there's hopefully an easy to remember website, but I'll give you the link afterwards as well. It's www.leadernotaboss.com. And on that website, you will find a couple of things. One, 
quite a new thing that I'd love to have feedback on, which is a quiz for managers to take to help you identify what your biggest challenge is right now in your leadership journey. You can also find my contact details and information about my own podcast, which is called Leading with Integrity. So yeah, a long answer to a short question, sorry. 